Hello and welcome to How Hard Can It Be? Up close and personal with the real people behind the hits and misses in Boston's venture capital big time. My name is Mike Triano and I'm the Chief Marketing Officer of Actifio and a limited partner in Boston's own G20 Ventures. You can follow me on Twitter at MikeTrap and check out my Medium blog at MikeTrap.com. Each week we'll be getting to know one of the luminaries in our local startup community and drill into a specific area of their expertise for the benefit of other entrepreneurs and investors. All right, my guest this week is Matt Johnston, Chief Executive Officer of Modic, the leader in open source marketing automation. Modic makes it easy for you to put the right message in front of the right person at the right time, empowering enterprises and agencies with a flexible, open platform built for us by us. Before joining Modic earlier this year, Matt was a Chief Marketing and Strategy Officer at Applause, formerly known as Utest. An integral part of Applause's growth after joining in late 2008, Matt led that company's marketing, community management, partner channel, and company strategy, helping it become one of Boston's most highly regarded enterprise technology players. Before that, he played a range of senior strategic marketing roles at OnForce, Mimeo, and Herman Miller Office Furniture. Our second segment this week is a real treat for anyone interested in what it means to be a chief marketing officer in 2017. Matt and I together have held just about every marketing role you can have, including the one at the top. And our conversation covered everything from the anxiety and stress of keeping up with the latest technology phenom du jour to the roots, current reality, and future of the latest and greatest account-based marketing or ABM model. It's always fun to trade war stories with another senior marketing guy, and you'll be a fly on the wall for a conversation I know we both really enjoyed. All right, so before we get started here, please take a minute to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Overcast, or Pocket Casts, and please consider giving us a quick five-star review on iTunes. Those have really started to pick up, and it, it just has a massive impact on our level of exposure across the Apple platform. Now, How Hard Can It Be is sponsored by G20 Ventures, early traction capital for East Coast enterprise tech startups, backed by the power and expertise of 20 of the Northeast's most accomplished entrepreneurs, G20 Ventures, people first. How Hard Can It Be is also sponsored by Actifio, the world's leading enterprise data-as-a-service platform. Deliver your data just like your applications and infrastructure as a service available instantly anywhere. For hybrid cloud, faster DevOps, and better business resiliency, Actifio is radically simple. Here now is my conversation with Matt Johnston. Well, welcome, Matt. Thank you very much. Thank you for coming out to uh, Actifio World Headquarters here. I appreciate the invite. You're in our spectacular boardroom. I am. Spectacular gleaming facility. Indeed. It's like I feel like a Bond villain here. It's, <laughs> it's very exciting. Um, Want to help people kind of get to know you a little bit. Where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up in uh, northern Michigan in a small town, about 2,000 people, called Kalkaska, Michigan. Uh, sort of place where genuinely everyone knew everyone. Uh, there was one public school. Uh, and you grew up and you went through the same class, uh, you would know if somebody new moved into town uh, or if somebody had moved out of town. Um, and so, yeah, very, very blue-collar upbringing, uh, really close-knit community. You're our first Calcaskan on the podcast. I would have to imagine. Um, did you come from a big family or a small family? or uh, Family of four, uh, myself and an older sister, uh, and then my parents. So you're the baby. I'm the baby. What was the, the, the your family dynamic? Were you guys close? Did you spend a lot of time together? Did you, did you go... You know, kayaking in Kalkaska, or what, yeah. what, do you, what does one do in Kalkaska? Uh, it's, uh, it's very outdoorsy, Yeah, um, and we did spend a lot of time together. Uh, so, you know, working parents, um, both my sister and I were active in sports. Parents were super involved, either coaching or keeping book or, you know, driving kids to the games. 
um, you know, annual camping trips, that sort of thing. So yeah, we spent a lot of time together, uh, a lot of, uh, of outdoor activities. What'd your dad do? Uh, my dad was a, a state foreman for the Michigan Department of Transportation for about 30 years. Uh, everything from driving uh, a snowplow uh, to working on equipment and then eventually being the foreman of the Kalkaska garage. And your mom? Uh, my mom was a township treasurer. She was the tax woman. Right. Not someone you want to mess with. That's right. Oh, and where did you go to, where did you go to uh, undergrad? Uh, so I went in Grand Rapids, Michigan, a few hours south of Kalkaska to a private college called Calvin College. And was that um, a big deal for your family? Was that sort of the default place where people went in your high school? Or what was that, uh, that transition like? Yeah, that's a good question. No, I was, uh, I was one of the first to go to Calvin College. Uh, it was not the default. The default would have been you know, Central Michigan or U- University of Michigan or Michigan State. Uh, it was a private college. Uh, my dream school growing up was University of Michigan. Right. Uh, I'm still a fan. Hail. Um, and I had gotten in there, but I got an opportunity to play uh, baseball at Calvin College. And so at the time, I wanted to be an architect. And Calvin College had a program where you could do, I believe it was three years of undergrad at Calvin and then two years at University of Michigan and walk away with your master's in architecture. Uh, So I I went there. I said, I'll go for a couple of years. I'll play some baseball, which I never could have done at University of Michigan. Uh, Calvin's a a great D3 program, but it's it's not the University of Michigan, uh, especially for a slow-throwing lefty like me. Um, and so I went and by the time I had hit the second year or so, I realized architecture was, was not my calling, uh, that, that business was much closer to what I wanted to do. Uh, and so university of Michigan got deferred, uh, for the first of two times. And you were a pitcher? Yeah, I was a pitcher. Uh, I, I, I couldn't have broken a pane of glass. Uh, I was a lefty with guile more than stuff. <laughs> but you had the intent of going to Michigan, and, and that sounds like there's a story there. What, what, what sidetracked you? There is. So the first time it sidetracked me was I wanted to go to Calvin because I could play baseball. Yeah. Uh, and I figured I would end up at U of M, but architecture wasn't my bag. Uh, after I left undergrad, I started uh, working for a furniture design and manufacturing company called Herman Miller. Uh, which I believe some of the the furniture in your gleaming headquarters. Much of it, yeah, yeah, much of it. Uh, and I learned a lot there about uh, premium brand and, and the value of design that you could actually create a, uh, an ongoing competitive advantage with something as subjective as design and, and craftsmanship. After about three years there, I was helping them build their e-commerce division, uh, and I had applied to the University of Michigan Business School, and I just found out that I got in. And uh, so I went and told the president of the e-commerce division that, that I would be leaving in a few months and, and moving to Ann Arbor. And he said, oh, that's funny. Uh, I was about to talk to you. Uh, we wanted you to, to move along with the head of marketing and the president. We were all going to move to New York City uh, to build this e-commerce division closer to where our, our audience lies. Uh, and I said, well, thanks, no thanks. Uh, and then he came back and said, well, what if we paid for your grad school at Columbia or NYU? Uh, and I I'm, I'm not smart, but I'm mildly observant, and I can do that level of math. Right. Uh, and so I, I talked with my wife about it, and we ended up uh, moving to New York City. Uh, Herman Miller was, was great about the whole thing. Uh, I ended up going to NYU for business school, uh, and that's how we kind of went from the Midwest to the East Coast. Got it. And did you do the program at Stern uh, while you were building up this business for Herman Miller, or was it yeah. sequential? Or Yeah, it was the, like the three-year kind of evenings and weekend program. It wasn't an executive MBA where they assume you know a lot already and yeah. you don't have to take all the classes. It yeah. was the, the part-time where you, you have to take every ounce of core in all of the classes in your major, and you need to fit it around your work. Right. Uh, so I was doing Herman Miller e-commerce during the day uh, and doing NYU and evenings and weekends. Did you live in the city? Yeah, lived in lower Manhattan. Uh, right, um, just east of the West Side Highway. Right. What was that like? 
Uh, it was a big transition. I, I often think about the transition from Kalkaska to Grand Rapids uh, and the order of magnitude jump that was in terms of populace and activities and, and culture and diversity. Uh, and then I think about the jump from Grand Rapids, Michigan to New York City, and, and they were pretty comparable. As you reflect back on this, I'm actually a Herman Miller fan. Like I, I, I'm, a, I'm a fan of design, and I love what those guys have done. I'm also intrigued by the business because they have justified a premium with design, and and I would say functionality. And you know, they've they've really done an amazing, uh, created an amazing franchise. You know, what did you what did you learn there as you dug into that business um, about uh, you know you taught you mentioned brands and design and some of those things, but like in general, what did you take away from that as a as a manager? Do you think? Yeah, it, it's a really good question. I, with the benefit of hindsight, uh, NYU uh, in general and Stern in particular are really quantitatively charged, right? They're, they're not known for liberal, liberal arts and, you know, the marketing degree. They're, they're known yeah. for quant jocks and finance and, and that sort of thing. Uh, and Herman Miller is in many ways the opposite. It's very qualitative. It, you know, it's all about these subjective things like design and, and, and beauty and uh, the, the balance between form and function. Uh, and to me, uh, I didn't know it at the time, but those three years of building, you know, kind of an e-commerce um, site and presence and experience for Herman Miller to sell these beautiful wares, and then in the evenings going to this just quant shop that didn't want to hear anything about subjectivity uh, or, or brand or premiums or, th- you know, there's no way you could charge a sustainable premium for something like brand. Right. Uh, it really actually rounded me out as a, as a marketer and a technologist, and I think even as an entrepreneur that... That that quantitative side is incredibly important, but there is still an element of art. Uh, whether you're writing a business plan or or drafting a marketing campaign, building a brand, building a culture, uh, you can you can science a lot of stuff. You can A/B test and optimize. Uh, but it was really to me it really fed the right and left sides of my brain. Right. Were you with them the whole time you were in New York? I was. So I was with Herman Miller for about seven and a half years up uh, through probably 2004 or five. And what did you do after? Uh, I joined my first startup. Uh, I joined Mimeo.com, uh, which is is on-demand printing, online printing. You know why? What what we what did you what were you looking for more of when you made the shift from a big you know successful corporate entity into a startup? Yeah, some of it was it was exactly that. I mean, Herman Miller, I think at the time was was several thousand people, um, and even though I had some some really impactful and informative jobs, uh, you're still one citizen in a, in a pretty big machine. Right. Uh, and Mimeo at the time, I believe was, you know, two or 300 people, but most of them were in the production facility in Memphis, Tennessee. There were probably 80 to a hundred people in the office. Uh, the marketing department was, I was the second person, right. uh, there's a 20 person sales team. And so in many ways it really was a pretty, pretty young startup. And that was really appealing to me. The, the amount of impact I could have, the number of hats that I could wear, uh, after having been at, at Herman Miller, which was was a much bigger entity. All right. So you want to stretch your legs a little bit. And... Yeah, I wanted you know want to get uncomfortable a little bit. Uh, Herman Miller had had prepared me. I'd been uh, the producer or project manager for the e-commerce site. Uh, had done a lot of digital marketing, um, but hadn't been exposed to the breadth of marketing. And so at Mimeo, that was everything from events to PR to brand positioning to sales enablement, things that were were not a part of the mix at Herman Miller. Right. How was your experience there? It was good. Uh, it was my first startup experience, so a whole different set of pace. Uh, it was also the first time I had been a part of a company where the product was the technology. Uh, so at Herman Miller, the technology was right. a means to distribute and market the products. Uh, at Mimeo, the software was what would a- enable you to, you know, to order that document and 
uh, and, and customize it just so and make sure that it was going to arrive at your client's site a day from now. Right. Uh, the, the software really was the product. And so that was a, that was a, a big shift for me. What did you leave there to go do? Uh, I left there to go to a smaller startup, uh, which was called OnForce. Uh, and so OnForce was crowdsourced IT work. If someone wanted to fix a printer, set up a network, hang that flat panel TV, think of it as Geek Squad through crowdsourcing. Huh. Um, and that, to me, was the first exposure to two-sided marketplaces, the first exposure to crowdsourcing, online communities, the what, what we would become known as the gig, the gig economy. Right. Uh, and there I was doing, uh, I was, again, really early in marketing, just at a little bit higher level, uh, and kind of owned the breadth of the marketing experience for Onforce. Was it the role or the business? What, what were you intrigued by in, uh, in, that, in that? Part of what appealed to me was the, the people, yeah. uh, the, the, the SVP of product and marketing and the VP of marketing uh, were really thoughtful, curious people. And as they started to paint a picture of boy, this is crowdsourcing before anyone called it crowdsourcing. This is a two-sided marketplace when eBay was one of the only examples of that. Right. Uh, and so as they talked to me about it, I just became curious and, and really fascinated with the business model. Um, and so it, it was really kind of the way they talked about it. It was just this intellectually challenging exercise to think about not one set of customers, uh, but to think about a product that's sitting between and balancing supply and demand. Reflecting back on the OnForce experience at a smaller place and creating a two-sided marketplace. What, what, what are a couple of things that you walked away from that having learned? You and I were talking uh, before we went on air about kind of things growing in concert or increasing in concert, not getting yeah. out of balance. One of the first things I learned with a two-sided marketplace is, you know, I can go build a lot of supply, but if I don't have demand, the supply will atrophy. Right. I can go build a lot of demand, but if I don't have the supply, the demand will churn. Uh, and so growing them in concert uh, and predicting the the growth of that, and saying you know, and and we're not to not to my my most recent job yet, but um, at U test and applause where I went after Onforce, it was the same thing. Getting to a place where you're growing supply and demand in concert, and do we need more European supply because we're anticipating European demand? That that was one big lesson. You can if if the machine gets out of uh, out out of whack or out of sync, uh, you can get in a lot of trouble in either direction. You've spent a lot of your career in this sort of, you know, what a cynic might call chicken and egg businesses. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, what, what advice do you have for people who are facing a challenge like that? You have to think about the fact that you actually have two sets of customers. And that, to me, was one of the most interesting and, and uh, intellectually challenging parts of OnForce uh, was that, you know, you, you're not just selling them a product or it's not just selling them the services of employees. Right. You have to cater to and woo and activate two different audiences with two different sets of messages and two different sets of value prop. Uh, so I think that's really important. Uh, the second thing I would say is really important is alignment of incentives between them. Uh, if you have, if you're doing a good job of aligning incentives, you know, between a, a rider and an Uber driver or, or pick whatever model you want, then things fall into place pretty naturally and everyone is behaving the way you hope they would behave. As soon as you start to, as soon as you've misdesigned the rules or the point system or the incentive system in some way, uh, it becomes it becomes obvious quickly because people are acting in their own self-interest. They're doing what you're incenting them to do, whether it's through badges or points or dollars or ratings. Uh, they're playing the game and you've designed the game, but you're not getting the outcome you want. So why'd you leave there? OnForce uh, has, was backed by uh, a, a local VC firm called General Catalyst sure. out of Cambridge, um, and they wanted the company to move closer to home. 
And so Onforce had moved from Manhattan to Lexington, Massachusetts, uh, I believe when their lease was up in Manhattan. And uh, so that was actually how I ended up going from New York City to Boston. I was one of the, the few folks that made the trip. Right. Uh, one of the water carriers that helped bridge the gap between the, <laughs> right. the New York generation and the Boston generation. Um, and so that moved us up to Boston. Uh, and I got connected uh, with a gentleman named Duran Ravini, who is the CEO of Utest at the time. Uh, which at that time was crowdsourced software testing. Yeah. Uh, and they were really, really early. There were about seven employees. Uh, and I was, I was again, apparently I follow people uh, because what attracted me wasn't, you know, they weren't as far along as OnForce. Uh, it was a parallel move. It was a VP of marketing and community type role. Um, but Duran was really compelling in how he talked about not just the opportunity and the startup, but how he talked about the market and how he talked about the business model that he envisioned. And there were a lot of aha moments for me. I'd spent almost three years at Onforce, uh, and there were a few kind of facepalm moments for me in a 30-minute conversation with Duran as he talked about you know, building in recurring revenue uh, and the alignment of incentives and the average deal size. Uh, and I remember kind of sitting there saying, wow, like if I wasn't so heads down and didn't have the blinders on, like I... I I should have, these things should have occurred to me much sooner. Right. Uh, and so UTest was much, much earlier, much less proven. Uh, but there were a few facets that I looked at and said, boy, they have a, they have stronger macro factors going in their favor uh, than, than maybe OnForce does. And, and those included the notion that if you were, uh, OnForce was a single winner model, right? You only need one person to hang that flat panel TV. You don't want 10 people to each come and try. Uh, whereas software testing was a multi-winner model. And, and immediately it became apparent to me that, you know, the the morale of your community goes up if 15 people could participate in win per project as opposed to a winner-take-all model. Right. Uh, and that was really borne out. Um, and so the other thing was that, boy, software testing, that, that happens over and over. That happens every time there's a release uh, as opposed to when I go fix your printer, hopefully I don't have to come back and fix your printer again for a year. Right. So there was recurrence built into it. Um, and then the third thing that, that really appealed to me about Duran and Utest was he didn't want to sell into the existing channel. He wanted to sell directly to the brands. Um, and so, you know, their Utest, which became Applause, their customers are Google and BMW and, you know, all sorts of big brands, not just selling into QA outsourcing firms. Mm. So a couple of patterns there, you know, one you mentioned is the people and, your affinity for that and how that's always a big factor. And then second is, is, you know, you're obviously a really, a real student of the business. Like, you know, even, um, it sounds like from earlier your career, understanding the drivers of the value in the business, five forces stuff, you know, um, uh, profitability predisposition. It seems like that's, that's something you've always been thoughtful about. And then the, th- the third thing, it seems like you, you have an affinity for that part of the risk curve. You know, in the life cycle of a of a company, mm-hmm. uh, you keep being drawn down into these. Um, um, and I'm curious, um, I'm curious if you think that's a fair attribution. And second, if it is, um, why is that? What is it about that stage of a company that that you seem to find compelling? Yeah, I, I think it's a fair observation. It's definitely accurate. Uh, I think there are a couple of reasons. One, um, the earlier you get, the the fewer decisions you inherit. Uh, and that could be about the culture, it could be about the org, it could be about the product, or it could be about the business model. And that, as I started going earlier and earlier, uh, I recognized that there were fewer givens, things that couldn't be touched, uh, sacred cows that couldn't be challenged. Um, you know, 
and, and that was really compelling to me that, well, wait a minute, it's more of a blank slate and we can, we can optimize and we can build and we can do it hopefully right. The second one, uh, the second reason behind that was pushing outside my comfort zone. Uh, so at Mimeo, it was my first pure marketing job. And, and, you know, my realization was, wow, you know, I like this. It's challenging. It's interesting. Uh, I'm predisposed to it. I think I do this pretty well. At Onforce, I got to take a step up and run a bigger swath of marketing. Uh, but I always had uh, a mentor, a manager there who would keep me from running into the ditch. Uh, and so there's always somebody over my shoulder, you know, he, he would let me run, but there was always someone there to, to be the guardrail. Uh, and one of the things that really appealed to me about UTest, uh, I wanted to see if I could be that guy. Uh, I wanted to see if I could do it without, you know, could I go bowling without the, the bumpers uh, in the gutter to keep me, keep me safe? And so I think I would classify that as, you know, constantly wanting to be pushed outside a comfort zone. Um, you know, that like, okay, I, I, now I can do this if I have a mentor standing over my shoulder. I wonder if I can do it on my own. I wonder if I can go be that for someone else. We, we talk about A-B testing from a marketing point of view or a product point of view. Uh, you, you can do that from, from a lot of points of view, whether it's hiring archetypes, whether it's, you know, being somewhat agile and, and nimble in your thinking about the type of company and culture you want to build or the product you want to build, uh, structuring tests around your business model and what part you want to monetize. I, I really think that that is the interesting part. U-Test is very well known here. Uh, for those who don't know it, you know, what's the two-minute description of that business that eventually became Applause? And maybe just fill people in a little bit on the arc of, of uh, U-Test slash Applause. Sure. So uh, founded in 2007, started in 2008 uh, under the name U-Test, uh, and it was really crowdsourced software testing for websites. Uh, and then as mobile became a bigger deal in 2009 and 10 and 11, uh, it became web and mobile, uh, and it was ultimately the notion that no matter how much you test your software, uh, it's not going to behave the way you think it will in the hands of users. So different devices, different OSs, different browsers, different carriers, uh, and a lot of the, the value that, that we unlocked was when we, we finally understood that what made us special was not that it was crowdsourced, not that it was on demand, it was that we were testing what we called in the wild. Uh, and no matter how big your QA lab was, uh, no, how, no matter how much test automation you did, um, especially when you were talking about kind of consumer or, or end user facing applications uh, that were outside the firewall, uh, they were gonna, your users were gonna be coming at you from a million different devices, OSs, locations, use cases, uh, and you, there's no way you could cover that. You could see it when we, when we started putting pen to paper and we started to put together decks and advertising and we changed the, the website messaging, rolled out new positioning and messaging to our sales team, you could almost hear tumblers falling into place uh, where a lot of the friction melted away. Even when we'd be talking to the in-house QA and testing team, early on before we figured out that it was, you know, it was in the wild, that was the, that was the key differentiator and the unique selling proposition that in-house QA team would be looking at you like, you're coming for my budget, you're coming for my job. And as soon as we unlocked in the wild and we were able to say it, it's a, a direct complement to the in-the-lab testing that you're doing, yeah. you could just, you could feel the friction fall away. You could feel the, the skepticism fall away. And all of a sudden, these people that had maybe become gatekeepers holding us out of deals were inviting us in and saying, you're not saying I'm doing anything wrong. You're saying we're missing a link in the chain. Yeah. Uh, and that was really powerful for us. The second one was as we went from U-Test to Applause in 2014 and 15, and, and even the work they're doing now since I've left, uh, where it's, it's less and less about application testing and more and more about digital experience testing and feedback and research. Um, 
that's where, you know, it's not just a good move for applause, it's where the market's going. Because increasingly we're seeing the business and brand, the CMO, the chief digital officer, they're no longer stakeholders of the web and mobile product roadmap. They're actually driving the strategy and oftentimes driving the implementation. And they don't care, you know, their, their measure of success isn't, is it bug free or is it crash free? It's, is it, is it achieving the business and brand results that I need to achieve, that I'm being held accountable to? The experience from a CMO seat, when you, when you really start to hone in on like what it is the market cares about and what you're uniquely suited to provide, like the heavens open up. Yeah, it's you know, liberating. Everything is sunny. For yeah. It, yeah. it really is. And it's great when you, when you first have the aha and you say, boy, I want to go test this. You know? and, and as you start to get not, not all positive feedback, but you start to get affirmation of that, that directionally you're right, and you start to refine it, and you really start to hone in on the, you know, the, word, the specific sequence of words and the points you want to hit in a specific, you know, in a specific order. Yeah, it really feels like the tumblers fall into place and everyone's job gets so much easier. So applause is, uh, is let's see, it's eight years old now, eight and a half years old, uh, doing very well. They've, uh, they've raised more than $100 million uh, from companies like Scale Ventures and Goldman Sachs and Credit Suisse and Accenture. Um, so they're doing very well, growing really well still. Uh, I actually left there at the end of 2016. Um, decision to leave there must have been challenging. How did you think about making that shift and stepping into the CEO job at Monarch? Uh, challenging for sure. Um, I have nothing but good things to say about Duran, the leadership team, uh, the teams that I had built there, both on the UTES community management, uh, as well as the applause marketing, uh, and then the, the biz dev and corp dev side. Uh, so it was really challenging. It's tough to walk away. I'd been there eight years. Uh, I had seen the company grow from eight people to well over 300. Uh, they raised over $100 million. Fabulous ride. You know, you, you never go into an early startup and say, I'll bet we're going to do all of those things. Sure. Um, we got dealt a really good hand and we played it well. Uh, so it was really tough to leave. Um, the only thing that, there were two things that made it possible. One, I, I think eight years is a really long time in startup world. Uh, and not only was it a long time for me, was I starting to feel like I needed a change of scenery. I needed to get uncomfortable again. Uh, I think it's, it's necessary for a change of voice and a change of perspective for the company. Uh, and so they brought in a, a great marketer, a guy named uh, Charlie Ungashik, uh, who had been at PTC and, you know, fresh ideas, fresh perspective, thinks about IoT, thinks about digital experience, yeah. thinks about building a team and a brand differently. Uh, and I think that's really healthy. Uh, I think that, you know, the individual can get a little bit snow blind. Uh, and I think the teams can get a little bit, you know, stale or stagnant as well that, you know, eh, it's the same vision. It's the same guy. Yeah. Uh, so I actually thought it was a, a real win-win. I thought it was the, the right time for the company and the right time for me. As for the decision to join Modic, uh, that one started with an introduction from Michael Scott from Underscore. He introduced me to a, a young technical entrepreneur named David Hurley. Uh, who started the open source project uh, and open source community about 30 months ago uh, that you still see today at modic.org. Uh, and he was looking for a partner in crime, uh, somebody to help turn this great product and this great community into a great business and a great culture and a company. Uh, and so first of all, David and I connected uh, philosophically really well. Hmm. Um, we, we had a lot of just interesting conversations, uh, stuff we agreed on, stuff we didn't agree on. Um, but we were really philosophically aligned on the important stuff about how you build a company and how we think about, you know, what matters, uh, what, what's the DNA of the, the type of employee or the type of customer we wanted uh, to attract. 
um, you know, what our, what our ideal scenarios were for outcomes, what our definitions of success were. So that made it really easy. The other pieces that, that made Modic so attractive to me as a CMO, I've seen marketing automation done everything from really well to really poorly. Um, but I know that for a lot of marketers, it's at best a necessary evil. Uh, it's not something that they jump up and down. It, it, it's lost its original vision, which was it was supposed to give you time back. It was supposed to give you, the CMO, fast uh, pace so you could market further and faster and you could see the results. It was supposed to give your, your demand gen team, your ops team, time back so that they could be more creative and they could, they could make data-driven decisions. And I think in the last 10 or 12 years, it's ceased to do that. And so the opportunity to uh, really put a dent in that problem and, and get back to a place where marketing automation could actually become a force enabler. It could become a time creator. It could actually enable marketers to, to be more creative and, and actually derive data and make decisions based on it. Uh, I felt like that was a mitzvah for my brethren and sistren. Uh, I felt like it was maybe the best thing I could possibly do for the discipline of marketing. What's the most important thing you've learned in your first year as a CEO? So we're really early. Um, it's kind of you to say in my first year as a CEO. Uh, it, it's really, you know, the, the open source project is about 30 months old. The go-to-market's only about five months old. And so we, we've hired people from a lot of different B2B companies uh, around the Boston area in sales and in BDRs and in marketing and customer success and product. I think the first lesson that, that I've taken away as CEO is that you have to be very intentional. Um, you, you can't assume, you know, everyone knows what I'm thinking. Oh, we're going to be really customer-centric. I've said that before. And, and everyone's going to interpret that in the same way. Yeah. Not just as CEO, but as CEO in such an early stage with blank slates everywhere, drilling down to the next level, the next level, the next level. What does that mean from a marketing point of view? What does it mean from a sales point of view, from a customer success point of view, from a product point of view, for us to be wildly customer-centric, easy to work with, incredibly flexible and adaptable, not just in our product, but in how we go to market and how we treat our customers. Is it the delta between what you say and what they hear? That, that problem, or is it the translating these sort of ideas that live across the business into their departmental implications? Yes, but I would say it's more the latter than the former. Yeah. It, it, I do think everyone has their own interpretive filter, right? I might see something and interpret differently than you. I might hear something and interpret it not in the way you intended it. But I don't think that's the majority of it, in part because we're a small team and we sit eight feet from each other, yeah. right? It's a bullpen. There, there are no offices at Modic. Uh, and so there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, opportunity for us to stay connected. Right. I think it's the application of well, okay, what does that mean in the customer success context? What does that mean in the product management context? Right. Uh, and so it's not just a matter of I need to go tell you what I meant for product management. It's my job as CEO is is to kind of cast that vision, and then I want to walk that journey with you. You're the product management expert. You tell me what it means for product management. Uh, and then I need to help you stay connected with what it means for customer success and what they're counting on from you versus sales versus marketing. Yeah. So it's not solving the problem for them. It's making sure that there's connective tissue between all of those those lanes and that we're all kind of uh, rowing towards that same destination, that same North Star. People underestimate how much of the job is communication. Um, yeah. it, it's, it's uh, you know, strategy is a small fraction of the time that you spend, maybe a, a large fraction of the value you create, but... You certainly got to get that right. But so much of the, the labor of it is a series of one-on-one -on -one conversations to make sure everybody's on the same page and, yep. and pulling in the same direction, right? 
It's that. It, it is one-on-one conversations. We recently, uh, uh, the folks over at Acquia were nice enough to, to house us uh, for about six months and, and let us incubate there. But about a month ago, we moved into our own space. Uh, and having the ability to, like the number of, of impromptu debates, discussions, whiteboarding sessions uh, has been one of the coolest things to me to see, even in the last four weeks since we moved in. Uh, the ability for customer success and marketing and product to get together and say, wait a minute, like this is happening. There's something disconnected here. Let's go fix it. Yeah. Uh, and so even, you know, it is one-on-one sessions. It's also knowing which groups need to get pulled in. You know, does so-and-so know about this? Uh, because you're talking, you know, if we say we've only been going to market for, you know, five months, that means those employees have only been with us for five months, which means they're also building their own connective tissue. They didn't meet, you know, they haven't known each other for three years. Right. Uh, and so seeing that evolve and, and encouraging and, and in some cases kind of uh, driving that or, or pushing that to, to uh, that connective tissue to build uh, is really important. And, and I think one of the, the cool parts of, of building a young company. All right. So in general, but particularly in our business, change is the only constant. And you've been plugged into the marketing ecosystem as a user and now as a supplier for the platform that's at the core of that. When you look out across the marketing landscape, you know, how is it changing now? What, what do you see happening in the marketplace that, that is noteworthy, uh, either as a, you know, as a you know, CMO customer or as the CEO of a company helping to solve the problem? Sure. Uh, so regardless of which, which point of view I look at it, you know, from the, the supplier side or the, the consumer or customer side, the first thing I see is savvier marketers. Uh, and, and I hope that's true, but I see them being savvier buyers, more discerning, more technical, uh, also more autonomous. And I know that freaks IT departments out. Um, but similar to how we talked earlier about, you know, the C- CMO, chief digital officer now driving the web and mobile agenda, Marketers are, are able to make decisions, you know, not just about their marketing automation, but about where they want to host their site. And they're using Drupal or are they re- using WordPress? Uh, and do they want to, you know, plug Drift into the, you know, they're, they're not, they don't have to go back uh, to the IT right. gatekeepers and make decisions. So first of all, I see them being more discerning, more technical, more uh, savvy uh, in terms of the vetting and, and buying process. And I think that's a really healthy thing. Uh, the second thing I see is, is a lot more crowded landscape. Uh, than ever before. You've probably seen, you know, the, the infographic with just, it seems like 10,000 dots that are MarTech companies. It stresses me out. It, and, and the truth is, you know, uh, if you're big, big company, uh, you might go with a best of breed solution and say, yeah, I know I'm going to have to integrate all 12 of these things together. If you're, if you're not, if you're a mere mortal company uh, and you don't have endless resources, I, I think we need to see some consolidation in that space. Uh, yeah. Meaning that, Going and trying to string together 14-point solutions if I'm a 500-person company uh, is, is there's a lot of hidden costs and a lot of hidden risk to it. So I think that we'll see the pendulum swing not away from point solutions, but I think we'll see more and more integrated platforms. I, I mentioned that my personal belief is that I think ABM is actually part of the marketing automation stack. It isn't today, but it needs to be in 18 months, 36 months. You know, we're, we're just in the process of rolling out an a, you know, ABM program here. Mm. And, and it's amazing that my people are really into it um, in part because everybody wants to understand ABM. Right. And there's a sense of urgency to be able to, like, really get, you know, have, have applied this, you right. know. Ch- Charles Handy, who's someone I, I'm, a, I'm a huge fan of his work, but he wrote a book called The Age of Unreason, and he, 
he he coined the term, which I think is a predecessor to this to this idea, which was the idea of the portfolio career. Is, yeah. is how we thought about it. That people are going to go do different things, and you're accumulating these skills and these experiences, and you're applying them in very different kinds of roles and responsibilities. Right. And um, you know, it's it's exciting, but it's 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 stressful in a way. It is. You you don't really you don't get a lot of coasting time. Yeah. Uh, let me ask you a question. So you mentioned your team's really excited about ABM. Yeah. Is that uh, and I'm sure it's both, but how much of that is because they see it as impactful to Actifio's business and breaking new ground, and how much is because they recognize that, hey, the market values this. I need to have this this feather in my cap. I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, you know, we are a um, kind of very high average order value. Uh, you know, we have blue chip customers around the world. We're really selling to, you know, to, you know probably, you know, 50,000 companies in the world. And so we know who the universe of customers is. Um, we, we, we flipped the funnel conceptually a long time ago to coin, uh, to coin a phrase. Um, and, um, and, and I think we do have a sense of this is a much more focused way to, for us to go get the right kinds of opportunities that, uh, you know, um, I think it was the Engageo guys used this metaphor that it's, that it's, uh, it's not, it's not net fishing anymore. It's, it's spear fishing. Right. And that really resonated. Um, so I think there is a strong sense that this is what Actifio needs, um, but I, I I do think that part of it is just, you know, we wanna we, we wanna learn it, we wanna master it. I mean, we we in the same way that you know inbound had this urgency for a while. Now everybody kind of gets inbound conceptually, and right. you know we do a pretty good job of that. I think on the content marketing side, uh, but this is something new, and I think people, um, you know, I think people from a career and a professional development standpoint. I mean, good people always want to feel like they're learning new things, right? right. That they're not frozen. and right. They're being uh, pushed and challenged yeah. and expanding their horizons. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think if you don't have people that, that aren't asking you for that, you probably don't have, don't have the right people. You know? right. Certainly in a marketing person, I would expect that. Right. Um, so I, I do think that there's, there's no question that regardless of Actifio's needs, there is a real affinity to, you know, to uh, stay, up, stay current right. on the latest marketing, you know, tools and technologies. It becomes a, a recruiting and retention advantage that this is the place you go, or this is the type of place you go to stay on that, that forward-looking edge. I think it does. And, um, you know, it's, it's, hard to, um, it's hard to tell what those things are going to be, you know, as they're happening, right? Mm-hmm. You know, there are so many people who are, who are arguing that their thing is the next one of those, right? And... The you know fat, the fad versus phenom <laughs> yes, debate. Yes, um, and marketing people. It may be that we're particularly susceptible to those things, right. being in the business of creating them and mm-hmm. such. Um, but uh, you know, and and like anything, ABM is is um, all these things are are um, nuances, interpretations, different shades. I mean, there's there's very little that starts from a standing start and is like fundamentally new idea. That's all sort of you know evolutionary. But I do think there is a mindset shift. Mm-hmm. required to be effective in an ABM-based world that is different from the mindset required to uh, to succeed in, in, let's say, inbound. Yeah, I would also say, and we, we had gone through the same evolution at Applause, that you know we, we started working exclusively with startups eight years ago, and then it was mid-market, and then it was, uh, it, it's still a portfolio, but it's shifted more and more to those big brands who have omni-channel, web, mobile, brick-and-mortar experiences. Yeah. And so the other thing I, I really do like about the ABM movement is that is how 
most sales organizations think about the world. They've got a, a list of named accounts that they're going after, right? They've got their primary and their secondary. And so to the extent that it, it becomes a, an alignment mechanism between marketing and sales, uh, that can't help but be a good thing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think that um, that's one of the things that I love about it yeah. um, is that uh, that's something we've always prided ourselves on here, that we have a unified go-to-market model as opposed to a marketing model optimized for MQL and a sales model optimized to make the number each quarter. Right. Um, I, I think that creates all kinds of dysfunctional behaviors in the vast majority of marketing and sales organizations. Now, do you think ABM, uh, sorry, I'm asking questions. No, no, it's great. Go ahead. Um, do you think ABM, uh, it, clearly it applies if you're, if you're a bigger ticket, higher ASP, going towards, you know, the enterprise end of the spectrum. Inbound tends to apply more to that, you know, the front, the front of the funnel, like you said, fishing with big nets. Yeah, high velocity. Do you think you ever will ever get to a place where ABM, you know, can apply to the mid-market or even like kind of the smaller fish or is it, is that anathema to what it is? No, I, I think that there's an aspect, um to it that is i mean it, these are all shades of gray i mean you, you can create customer archetypes and segments sure. and power them with a, an abm approach to uh you know contact management you right. know right so so, it so might not be named but it's persona driven yeah yeah so you know we have seven identified segments for new logos and then we have existing customers so the the we the all the energy expended inside actifio marketing is 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 channeled through one of those eight lenses yeah. you know um and um, and then within each of those, uh, you know, we 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 have individual. There are individual accounts that are um, that we can that we can chase. Right. And I guess that's that's one of the one of the things that I really like about it is that is that um, it's sort of um, it's it scales um, up to up to a, a reasonable size. Like right. we're not a mass market play. We're not going to sponsor the masters anytime soon. Right. Um, but um, but it also it becomes intimate uh, in in a way that I think is is relatively unique to it. Yeah, uh, it's hard to target individual companies with content marketing. It's a bit of a blunt blunt instrument. But it's, this is this is much very different. It's funny that you say that. Like I I think a lot about you know marketing at a, at a really small scale and then how you scale that up and and there's a couple of things there. You know, one I need to scale it. I need a bigger platform, a bigger megaphone. Uh, but gee, I, I can't just shout the same message at everyone, right? This company's different than that company, and this CTO is different than that VP of marketing. Uh, and, and so as I think about ABM, even as I think about marketing automation, because I'll tell you my, my personal belief is that as the market matures, ABM's actually part of marketing automation. I, I don't view it as, as a standalone module. It might be a module depending on how a company markets it, yeah. but it's part of the stack, and it needs to work with, um, it needs to work, in close concert, you know, with my marketing automation. So it's either an airtight integration or, in my opinion, more likely part of the marketing automation stack. Getting to a place where you can have that that personal conversation at scale, right? You wish you could employ enough marketers to write a, uh, you know, a handwritten note and deliver it at their door or right. write a, a, a narrow cast email, but you can't. Yeah. Uh, you know, that pesky CFO just won't let you hire the 14,000 marketers you need. He's an asshole, isn't he? <laughs> um, and so th at the end of the day, that that to me is... It is the challenge of for marketing teams. It's also the, the the problem we have to solve from a marketing automation point of view. It's how do I personalize at scale, and how do I personalize effectively at scale? And the other trap I think we fall into, and, and I'm not even talking about Modic now. I'm talking about me as a marketer. The other trap we fall into is it's so easy to think about um, 
the, the channel that I have at my disposal is email. So what I'm really talking about is email personalization. Yeah. And maybe I'm talking about website personalization. I think as we, as marketers really start to develop a more nuanced view of, of ABM, uh, it, it won't be ABM. It'll just be how I market. And it won't be, I need to personalize that landing page, personalize my homepage, and maybe I personalize, put you in a different email thread. It'll be, how do I think about the omni-channel experience yeah. from your website to your mobile application to if you have IoT, uh, all of your landing pages, are they personalized to who I am and what I've done and, and, and my buying intentions? Yeah. And then as I think about communication channels, it can't just be, you know, how do I get a, a better open and click-through rate on my emails? It's It's got to be cross-channel communication. It could be push alerts if I have a mobile application. It could be SMS if that's appropriate for my brand and user base. It could be uh, in-app notifications. It could be social monitoring and social messaging. But getting to a place where you can personalize not just the message, but the the property that it occupies and the channel that you push that message through, that to me is the holy grail for marketers. And I think that that's that to me is one of the reasons that ABM feels so significant because what you're describing there is really a shift from a a you know tactic centric marketing portfolio to a more user centric marketing portfolio right. that that you're talking about this change from like whatever it is whatever you know, silo, you know, I do events, I do whatever, that sort of very 20th century way to think about the marketing portfolio versus trying to deliver a unified customer experience throughout the whole buying journey from awareness to positive predisposition through, uh, you know, uh, you know, deeper exposure and, and, you know, analysis and like all the way through sales. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it feels like, you know, we're, we're, this is a real, it's a shift in some sense over to something that is a little bit more focused on, you know, the individual buying coalition inside an individual company, which yeah. is which is where the rubber meets the road. Well, in a lot of ways, I think we we all, you know, come from what we we know. Uh, and, and when we think about ABM or marketing or marketing automation, we think about it as, you know, email for our website. And we can personalize the message to that, that individual, but we, we ignore the channel, uh, meaning that, like, I'm just going to hit you with a different email. And it might be, you know, special for you, Mike, but I should be thinking about the channel is just as important, the timing of the message, the timing of that delivery, the sequence of delivery. Uh, in a lot of ways, it's, it's how do we make our, our marketing, our messages, and the channels through which we deliver them not only unified, which is a great word that you just use, but personalized and, and more human, but then do it at scale. Yeah. Because, again, the CFO is not going to let me hire an army yeah. that I want. No, I, I, had, I, I, um, I wrote a blog for eight years, the title of which was Scalable Intimacy. Because I I feel like that's where this, that's where this needs to go. That's that's what the promise of digital right. is is the ability to deliver intimacy at scale. Right. Uh, because that's what buyers want. That's that's what's required to be effective, to be authentic. Yeah. Um, and and I think we're just now getting to a place where that's becoming real. Well, and I think it, that's why you know you've been a CMO for a long time. I've been a CMO for a long time. We get so excited about ABM because it, it's that. It really does. It's a whole new stretch of runway. Yeah. I think in two years, four years, we're going to look back on ABM in 2016, 17 and go, God, we were just focused on personalizing the message, yeah. not the not the delivery mechanism, not the channel. Boy, weren't we, we were crawling when we thought we were walking or running. That's exactly right. It does feel like it's a jump to another curve. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, uh, and uh, you know, that's, that's, uh, that's exciting for people who, who uh, are so easily bored with the old curve. <laughs> I'm going back to print. I don't know what you're... I don't yeah, know you're. absolutely. Fire up. Fire up the Wayback Machine. 
Just kidding, folks. There's no going back. Marketing uh, person is kind of like a shark these days, and um, you got to keep moving forward if you want to stay alive. All right. How Hard Can It Be is sponsored by G20 Ventures, early traction capital for East Coast enterprise tech startups. Backed by the power and expertise of 20 of the Northeast's most accomplished entrepreneurs, G20 Ventures, people first. Hard Can It Be is also sponsored by Actifio, the world's leading enterprise data as a service platform. Deliver your data just like your applications and infrastructure as a service available instantly anywhere. For hybrid cloud, faster DevOps, and better business resiliency, Actifio is radically simple. Thanks for sticking around, and we will see you next week.